Acts chapter 2. Um, I want to just read this one verse, and then we're going to jump over to the book of Romans. But I, I want to I set it up by just a single verse out of Acts chapter 2. Uh, this is a bit of a famous description of the church, the first century church that was, that was birthed on the day of Pentecost, about 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. And it said several thousand people heard the gospel, were cut to the heart, they were convicted of their sin, and then they asked the question, what must we do? Like, we're, this is terrible. God is going to judge us. We, we're st- we stand condemned before a holy God. What can we do? And the person who was preaching, who happened to be the apostle, Peter that day, said, repent. Turn. Turn away from your sin. Put your faith in Jesus. Be baptized. And that was the beginning of the church. And as it would seem, several thousand people were added to the church that day in this community erupted and this was it says it says in acts chapter 2 says they they devoted themselves to the apostles teachings the bible essentially to the fellowship coming together eating together praying together and awe came upon every soul and miracles were being done through the apostles the leaders of the church and all who believed were together and had all things in common together they were together this incredible community was birthed and they were together they didn't all just disperse with a you know new little bit of information to to hold on to they didn't all um go home and start devouring podcasts individually by themselves separate There was a community, there was a togetherness that was formed. And I love that. I love being together. I love the idea of being together. I love the challenge of being together. I love dreaming about being a part of a community that somehow embodies Jesus, like the life of Jesus, forgiveness and grace and mercy and truth and all of these things that are Jesus and somehow being like the hands and feet of Jesus. The New Testament uses all these you know, metaphors to describe like who, who is this community together that embodies Jesus and I love it. I remember growing up, um, it was a different day. It was a different time. My family and I, there was six of us, my parents and my three siblings, we would walk to church every Sunday morning. Um, I think we picked the church because it just happened to be the one closest to us. Um, It was a Baptist church, a big Baptist church, the first Baptist church, that's what it was called. And we would walk there every morning. The only way you ever knew what was ever happening in the church is if you like showed up and, and maybe got a, a piece of paper or something. I don't ever receive, uh, remember seeing mail from the church show up. There was no website. Um, they never got around to setting up their Facebook page. This, of course, was like 40 years ago. And so you actually had to go and like be together, be with one another to figure out like what's going on, what's the announcement, what's the thing, who's doing what, who's getting married, who, 
has passed away. And it was a real sense of togetherness. I remember my parents, um, who were quite young as far as parents go, they had a, a married couples group. Um, and I, I remember that group. I remember the chemistry just this sense of like we are on this journey in life together. I can remember their names. I remember the Halls. I remember the Lambs. I remember the Mellows, Gary and Kim Mello. I remember the Garbers, Ed and Jan. Like these are, I remember the McDonald's before Rick died in the plane crash. I remember like all of these couples that were my parents' friends and there was real chemistry and they were like going through life together and there was this genuine sense of community, not just like an idea about community, but like a real kind of family, a togetherness that I remember vividly. And maybe it's partly why I've now grown, I've grown up, become a Christian, a pastor even, and I still dream of like, wouldn't it be amazing to be that sort of community of Jesus together? Are you with me? That's cool, right? And super hard, insanely hard. And now I'm going to get to my actual sermon. Being together, staying together, growing together, working through the difficult stuff of life together in a way that does, in fact, resemble the love of Christ, impossibly hard. Impossibly hard as in only by the grace of God hard. Coming together is great. Staying together Walking it out, working through the stuff, getting offended to your core, and then trying to reconcile, repent, forgive, vice versa, and like keep walking together, ridiculously hard. Hard in family, hard in marriage, hard in friendship, hard in the church of Jesus. You know, Jesus' prayer on the eve of his crucifixion, I believe John 17 He prayed for the disciples and the disciples who were to come that we would all be one, that we would be united, that we would be this kind of together family, this community that was inaugurated on the day of Pentecost. Like this was his heart's cry that we would follow him and and do it together, one, unified. That's relationship. But it's so hard, which I believe is why like at least half of the New Testament is one apostle or another writing inspired by the Holy Spirit to the church, various Christians throughout Europe and Asia. This is how to do it. So virtually every letter in the New Testament begins with a gospel proclamation. Remember who Jesus is, what he's done, grace, mercy, forgiveness, future judgment, all of these things, awesome, hallelujah, amen. Now, here's how you actually walk it out without, like, killing each other. Here's how you embody it in community. And so, I want to take a few minutes and, and consider this. How do we do this together? In fact, we're going to take the rest of the month, leading up to November 3rd. How do we as a church family or families, relationships, how do, we, how do we do this? How do we work it out? What are some of the pitfalls? What are the potentially divisive 
issues that come up. How do we do it in such a way that's not only like healthy and enjoyable and, and, and good and right, but how do we do it in such a way that is actually bears witness to the fact that the grace of God, it's not just an idea. Jesus is with us. He's helping us. So there should be something about our together that like, demonstrates God's grace to the world around us. When it's all crazy and people are yelling at each other and, and it's just a complete debacle and it's madness and, and the world seems to be like going like hyper-tribal more and more every day, every tragedy, every controversy, just divide, divide, divide. And it's just on steroids online. It's, it's out of control. How do we as people of grace, Jesus followers, do together in a way that actually, not, not in like, hey, look at us, we're better than you, but like if the world were happened to glimpse in through these windows, they might think, what on earth? How do these people do that? How do they do that? How do they do together? Let's go to Romans chapter 14. There's so many places we can go. And uh, we're going to start here for this morning. I think the words, yeah, there we go. Romans 14 verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him or her. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Let's pause there. Last week, if you were at our sidewalk service, we looked at a very similar passage. The issue wasn't to do with food, it was actually to do with circumcision, two totally related symbols. But there was something about this debate, this controversy over like what's proper or Christian to eat and what's not. Now these are ancient identity markers. And they're very much tied up in the Old Testament and, and it's, 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 it's diet code. It's mosaic dietary code. Something about the way God's people were meant to eat and dress and, and do sex and like all of these things were meant to set them apart. When Jesus came, he was the fulfillment of all of these things. He embodied circumcision and holiness and the law and love and all of these things in such a way that now on this side of the cross we can look back and say and agree with the New Testament that oh those things were all foreshadowing those were all symbols those were all pointing to the one who was to come these were things to prepare the way for the Messiah and so now whether you're circumcised or not that's not really the point whether you eat kosher food or not that's not really the point whether you go to church on a Sunday a Saturday or some other day or not none of that is actually the point those were all symbols foreshadows to prepare us for Jesus 
And yet, as the church was birthed, there was still these controversies swirling around. It's not like a mass email went out. By the way, don't worry about pork. It's all good. Jesus came. Praise the Lord. That never went out. Or if it did, half the church missed it because there was still major, major controversy about what you could eat or not eat. And I might add, um, I actually missed, I was supposed to insert um, a lame joke at the expense of vegetarians um, at the part where it says, don't despise the weak one who eats only vegetables. So there you go. If you're vegetarian, you know I'm joking, right? It's one of those, those risky jokes. <clears throat> so this is over food. And we're not going to go into all of the details. Like, why? Why food? What? I, I still don't get it. I don't know. You're using just weird Bible words. Like, okay, this, this is what I want us to get. This is what's actually important. There was an issue. And it was no small issue. As seemingly, I don't know, trite or weird as like, a food controversy might seem to us today, it was a huge deal then. It was, it was something that people were fighting over, a controversy within the church. And you can kind of imagine what that, how that might translate for us today. There's all sorts of debates and controversies. Among Christians, brothers and sisters, say, I love Jesus, I believe that the Bible is God's word, and your opinion offends me. I don't like it. I don't like you. Let's fight. Like this happens all the time. And what Paul is saying, welcome the one who is weak in faith. Whoever that might be. Could be you. Could be them. Welcome them. But not to quarrel over opinions. Let's talk about the plight of opinion. How do we work through controversial issues when they arise? What do we do with our opinions that threaten to divide? How, how do we work through this stuff? A few points. Number one, know that not everything that is true is a truth worth fighting for. Now, in fact, when it comes to this food issue, and Paul talks about one who's weak in faith, one who's perhaps doesn't, not quite there, doesn't have the full revelation, don't understand that actually don't worry about the food, it's all good. He's referring to them as the one who's quote unquote weak in faith. So Paul's not confused about who's actually more correct doctrinally speaking. He understands and he, he even goes on to say in this letter that, look, I know that in fact, God's not bothered by what I eat. And he says the same thing about circumcision. He's like, I know for a fact that actually God's looking at the heart. And what really matters is that he's done surgery on your heart, that he's cut away the old self-centeredness, the flesh as the Bible puts it. And so he's not confused about like, well, what, who is really right? But what he's saying is there are competing opinions within the church. And what he's saying within that, don't fight. Don't quarrel. So there is truth. It's not that we're saying, well, we don't really know who's right. 
he's saying that there's things that are true that aren't truth worth fighting for. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that oftentimes the temptation can be when you find controversies swirling about in society or the church, the temptation is to always marginalize, not always, sometimes to marginalize truth just so that we can get along. That's always a bad idea. Because where truth is relativized, opinion becomes dogma. If there is no truth, if there is no foundation, if we don't know where the buck stops, then we all have opinions and now my opinion becomes truth. My opinion becomes greater than yours. And so we don't want to ever relativize truth. God's word is true. Jesus is the truth. There are certain core aspects of what it means to follow Jesus about who he is and what he's done for us that we don't ever want to relativize. But not all truth, not all that is true is truth worth fighting for. Some things you need to just let go. I remember um, there was a sweet, sweet um, sister who, who was a part of Grace City for a while and she, her husband moved away and such a wonderful couple. I have the utmost respect for them. Um, but she had a very deep conviction to, to wear a head covering. And um, we would talk about it in church. There's, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians uh, where Paul, the same guy that wrote Romans, says quite explicitly that if, if a woman comes into the house of God, she has to cover her head. Y'all are in sin. <laughs> I'm kidding. I shouldn't make jokes. That's how I got in trouble last time. And I actually preached a whole sermon on it. And I basically made the argument that, that that's, that's not, you don't need to be wearing a covering on your head if you're female right now. So there you go. Um, actually, it does say if you're male, you shouldn't be wearing a hat in church. Also not a problem. <laughs> okay, go listen to the sermon. It's in 1 Corinthians. Um, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So her opinion was that she should cover her head. My opinion was that, no, that's, you don't need to do that. And I'm pretty convinced that I'm right. Because I have a theology degree and you don't. Right? Who's more right in that scenario? Well, if I had actually said that, I would have been in sin and should, have, should repent immediately. Because I'm the one using my quote-unquote rightness to quarrel what really should be in the category of opinion. Some truths are more important than others. And there's a difference between what's true and what is your opinion about the truth. We all own Bibles. If you're a Christian and Jesus is Lord, he said that if you love me, you'll do what I say. You'll take my word as command. But just because you can read a Bible doesn't mean you have perfect, infallible opinions about the Bible. No matter how smart you think you are. Hmm. That's the first point. Number two. Your opinion may be right, but if it grieves your brother or sister, then you're wrong. You may be right 
in terms of one opinion versus another. But if your opinion causes a brother or sister to be grieved, to stumble, um, to be overwhelmed with hurt, offense, doesn't matter how right your opinion is, you're wrong. That's what Paul's saying. In fact, let's go to the next slide, please. Verse 15 and 16. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. Do not let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil, meaning even though you in your mind and your conviction and your thinking, you're convinced that in fact my opinion is true and what I really need to do is quarrel with my brother or sister or simply post my opinion because it's just that true and so important. And in the process, you grieve. Your brother or sister, you offend them, you hurt them, you cause them to want to take a step back. You add tension, unnecessary tension to the relationship. And Paul is saying, if that's what you do, if your opinion, if what you consider to be good ends up being spoken of as evil by someone who doesn't agree with you, you're wrong. You're wrong. Your opinion may be right, but you are wrong. If you have an opinion that causes a brother or sister to be grieved... Keep it to yourself. Keep it to yourself. Otherwise, you're going to put it out there, and that brother or sister is going to be grieved, and they're going to call evil what you think is good, and you're doing exactly what Paul's saying. Don't do it. Keep your opinion to yourself. Better that your brother or your sister or your church or your family or your friend is built up, is encouraged. Because even as something as radically significant as the mosaic dietary code, and I cannot emphasize what a big deal this was in the first century. I mean, this is the stuff church division is made of. And Paul is saying, it's not that important. Not if it grieves your brother or your sister. And we will all be held accountable for the grief our opinion causes another. Does anyone um, do Facebook, Twitter, Instagram? You guys, you guys have heard of this, right, right? This should be like serious, the Holy Spirit, I, okay, I'm gonna say this, this is pretty bold, but at this point, the Holy Spirit should be like working on your heart a little bit around the area of social media. Like I don't wanna go on some social media rant, all right? I do. Facebook, I have a very, very love-hate relationship with social media. Mostly hate. But the stuff that we post, I am convinced this is exactly what Paul's talking about. This is exactly what he's talking about. That if you post or repost something that causes a brother or sister to be grieved, even if you're right, you're wrong. You're wrong and you will be held accountable. You will be held accountable. Now this, this just flips like everything about individual rights and freedom of speech on its head, radically. 
Because we all have been taught to believe that like, look at I, it's my right to put my opinion out there. And my opinion is so important. I mean, it's practically divine. And the world needs to know about it all the time. And I have freedom of speech, thank you very much. Therefore, it is my right. And the gospel would say, lose your rights. Lose them, lose them every day. Die to yourself. Put the interests of others before yourself like Jesus. This is how the family of God does together. And we say, you know what, I've got an opinion. We'd be happy to share it with you. But we should probably do face-to-face, over coffee. And if you don't want to hear it, please, just let me know. I'd be happy to keep it to myself. Because the togetherness of God's family is way, way more important This is very hard. We've been conditioned to do the exact opposite our whole lives. When does, I gotta wrap up. When does, when should we actually confront someone with our opinion? Let's say someone states an opinion and it's wrong and we don't agree with it. In our minds we're thinking, man, I've got, I've got, I've got just cause. I've I've got biblical grounds to not only disagree with that opinion, but I think I should actually like confront this person. I I should say something to them and maybe it will be unpleasant and it could possibly potentially even add strain on the relationship. In the book of Galatians, we have a beautiful example of when this happens. So again, it's a food issue. We're told in Galatians, we'll cover this in depth in the study starting next Monday, In the book of Galatians, Paul, who's writing to the churches in Galatia, says, you'll recall how I confronted Cephas, a.k.a. Peter, another one of the leaders in the early church. I confronted Cephas to his face because he was acting hypocritically and causing others to do so. Even Barnabas was caught up in his hypocrisy because he refused to sit with the Gentiles who were not observing the kosher diet. And so Peter, even though he knew that that's not something that was like true, he got caught up in sort of his own culture, his own old legalistic tendencies, his thinking that like, well, I used to be kosher and and I kind of still am but I know the Gentiles aren't and I know that if my friends see me eating with them I know that if somehow I'm associated this could just be bad for me and 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 I could like lose some some clout as a leader and so he separates himself and it says that Paul confronted him to his face and he said you're acting in a way that's contrary to the gospel You're acting in such a way so as to make a whole group of people who also love Jesus feel like they don't belong because they got the wrong opinion. And Paul says, when that happens, when your opinion translates into action that is hypocritical, anti-gospel, and makes brothers and sisters feel like they don't belong, now confrontation is appropriate. Hannah, can you come up, please? Now confrontation is appropriate. And we're told, again, explicitly, that it was done face-to-face. Face-to-face confrontation. 
Let me end here, and then we're going to close in a song of worship, and we'll call it a morning. Romans 14, you know, it's pretty much the, the very end of one of the longest, most epic letters in the New Testament. It's a big old book. They call it like the, like the, 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 the Himalayas of theology. It's just like if you, can, if you can scale Romans, you've reached the top. And at the very end of this incredible letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he concludes with, with an encouragement. He goes on to say quite a few other things. And in chapter 15, verse 13, he kind of ends like this. He says a few more things, some practical things, details about his plan to visit Rome. But the letter essentially ends with Romans 15, chapter, chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. How does Jesus help us to live together, to grow together, to navigate through the, the challenging, controversial things of life together? Why do we get so tribal? Why do we get so like insecure to the extent that like, if you challenge my opinion or if you don't affirm my opinion, I feel like somehow it's up to me to like defend God himself. And I would argue, and I think this, I, I'm, you can push back on this if you want, but I am convinced in my mind that the reason why Paul ends with hope is because when we have our hope secure in Jesus, when we know, look, at, it doesn't really matter what your opinion is about me. It doesn't really even matter in this instance if we agree or not. What matters is, is that Jesus is alive that we are forgiven, you're a brother, you're a sister, we're a family, we're the church of Jesus Christ, he conquered death, he's alive, and we can have hope, we can be secure. My identity is secure in Christ. And if I see something that you post that I don't like, that crosses me, that feels slightly offensive, and our opinions clash, I don't have to get so insecure that I retaliate, or I cancel, or I just leave. That's what we do most of the time, right? We just leave. I'm out. Send me the divorce papers. Like, we're, we're done. And that's not to marginalize divorce. But it's just that extreme. It's that shocking. It's that painful. And I want to say, church, can we stand together, please? Church. We would do well to fix our eyes on Jesus to find our security in our king. To know that when we disagree, <laughs> when the controversy erupts, or God forbid, your pastor says something that you really, really don't like. There's hope. There's hope, not in me, 
Not in this, not in your opinion, whether you're right or wrong, in Jesus. He's alive, we're forgiven. He welcomes us home. This is how the people of God grow together. This is how we work through the hard stuff. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We keep our hope securely anchored in his life. Let's worship our King.